So welcome to King's Health Partners Haematology Primary Care Podcast, or better known as the KHP Heme Pearls series. My name is Rachna Chowler, and today's podcast, we will be focusing on a favourite topic of primary care, B12, and the common queries that me and my colleagues have around this topic. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dipti Radia, who is a consultant haematologist at Geisen St. Thomas's, which is part of King's Health Partners. So thank you for joining me and Dipti today, and I will go ahead with our first question. So Dipti, can we start off by having a little bit of a reminder of the importance of B12 in the body, please? Thanks, Arjuna. As you know, that this is a challenging topic in many ways, but a really important one and a very common question that comes up and we see patients with this issue. So B12 is really needed to form the red cells and the DNA. It's really the DNA component that's really important. It's a key player in the formation or, and development of brain and nerve cells, so within the myelin sheets, which explains why if you have severe B12 deficiency, you move down to getting the neurological damage. So that's really the key thing. The other thing mm -hmm. to bear in mind in terms of physiology is that B12 binds to protein. So there's dietary sources of B12, and there's a range of them, not all dairy, which we'll go through, but it binds to protein within the food products. It gets transferred to the stomach where the hydrochloric acid um, and uh, enzymes free it from the protein it's bound to in the food, attaches itself to intrinsic factor, which then takes it down into the small intestine where it's absorbed a little bit more in order to be utilized for that important job of DNA synthesis and red cells. So it's kind of the pathway that I bear in mind when I'm thinking about where could the problems be with B12 right. deficiency. So hopefully that gives a bit of a background. Yeah, that's so useful. And you mentioned the, um, the, the word intrinsic factor in the stomach. And I guess we'll talk about that later because of course those two things can affect B12 absorption. Absolutely. And so um, intrinsic factor is needed to transfer that B12, as we said, across. Um, and then intrinsic factor, if we're looking at one of the causes of B12, just to feed it into here, we're talking about pernicious anemia, and that comes up regularly, is a specific antibody for pernicious anemia. We tend to also do gastric parietal antibodies, and that's not particularly mm. specific because you can get gastric parietal antibodies with lots of reasons. So when we're investigating for pernicious anemia, actually one of the things that holds true is that if people have a family history of significant autoimmune disease, autoimmune symptoms and signs and a family history of pernicious anemia, they're more likely to develop it. So, you know, treating them, maybe you have a lower threshold than you would do otherwise. And in terms of the antibodies, you do both intrinsic factor and uh, gastric parietal, but bear in mind, intrinsic factor antibodies are more specific. If they're positive, okay. you're definitely there. Okay, so that's one uh, reason for a B12 deficiency. What are the other things that we need to think about in terms so of So again, think of the pathway. So if, again, First of all, something, what's wrong with the stomach? You've got the B12, the dietary is most important and will be mm. the most common uh, because if you've got inadequate intake, you're not going to get the food in in order for it to then have the B12. Then secondarily, what's going on in the stomach? So anything that affects the stomach in any mm. disorder. So achlorhydria, as you get older, more elderly patients develop B12 because they've got atrophic gastritis. Uh, mm. PPIs very commonly affect mm. it. So PPIs will cause a low B12 because they reduce the acid in the stomach and therefore change the absorption of it. Uh, there are other medications we'll talk about later. Anything these days, we do a lot of bari bariatric surgery. So anything that's mm. called surgical intervention to change the size of the stomach or the uh, lining will, can cause a B12 deficiency. 
and then move further down the gut. As we said, some of it is absorbed from having been taken down with the intrinsic factor. So anything with a small intestine, so inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, again, any surgery that's affecting the gut or malabsorption can also be a cause of B12 deficiency. That's so helpful. So in, we've, we've talked about deficiencies and we've talked about some of the screens that we would do. So you mentioned antibodies and the celiac screen. What's the role of some of the other blood tests that we should be doing, like reticulocytes? When should I do that? Or Okay, you know, so I, I yeah. guess taking a step back a little bit, the classical picture of B12 deficiency, isn't it? It's supposed to be the macrocytic anemia. Yeah. And that happens very rarely. The classical feature of somebody presenting you with these lovely symptoms that you think, oh, they've got B12, and then you have a big MCV and you find the hypersegmented mm. neutrophils and the ovalocytes. That is lovely, but it happens very rarely. Also bear in mind that 25% of patients that present with some sort of neuropathy have a normal full blood count and a normal MCV. So it comes back to that clinical history is vital in terms of these non-specific symptoms. The other challenge we have is B12, just the B12 assay, the cobalamin assay, is very variable and not particularly sensitive, which is why we have, there's no definitive markers, which is why we have this intermediate range. So suspicious mm. of B12. Right. You okay. know, if you know it's high, it's high and that's great, but you can't specifically say if B12 is low, so you have an intermediate range and then you have a definite low. High B12 is not really a medical problem, doesn't cause a neuropathy. We're worried about the low B12. So we move on to the secondary, more specific assays that are now carried out, like the methylmalonic acid or the mm -hmm. HOLO-TC. And those are a bit more specific. And they will tell you that there's a functional deficiency. So you'll find in most laboratories, if they get the intermediate bit, the clinical history fits, then they'll move on. And in our lab, we go on to do the methylmalonic acid, the MMA. And what happens is that if you have a B12 deficiency, within that pathway, the MMA rises. So with a low B12, you should get a raised MMA that tells you there's tissue deficiency to act on. So okay. those are kind of the combination of B12 ones. Okay. Do they get done? Does that get done automatically? So in our lab at KHP, it does. It doesn't happen okay. in all places. So that tends to be the default going on through. And some labs will offer HOLO-TC, uh, which is also a similar assay to do, just to see if you've got functional deficiency. Okay. If I can ask about drugs, you mentioned uh, PPIs just now. I didn't realise until recently that metformin can yeah. affect B12. So metformin can cause a reduced B12. Uh, unless it's very low, doesn't cause a functional problem. Uh, omiprazole, uh, as we said, PPIs, the oral contraceptive mm -hmm. pill can also cause a low ah. B12. So it's bearing in mind. So then when you, see, when you put patients on these drugs and they're also getting older, then check the B12 level and the MMA. Just be certain because you've got the silent B12 deficiency. You don't want to present later on with the paresthesias, which are typical because they're too late down the line. So if mm. someone is complaining of nonspecific or not complaining sounds terrible, if they're presenting with nonspecific mm. symptoms and it hits that this might be the cause, exclude dietary and do the assays, uh, specifically the more sensitive ones, before you start treatment. Okay. And if, if I can ask maybe... Um... Is, is there ever a place for um, um, using um, an intramuscular injection and then if someone doesn't like that, changing it to oral or? So um, for the ones that present with very low and new neurological disorders, as you know, as per the BNF, load them up straight away because that, that can be irreversible and that's an emergency. And then we tend to put patients on three monthly IM injections because actually that's helped with compliance in elderly patients and people forget. Um, and some patients might need them a bit more frequently than three monthly. I'm sure you've come across that. People get the fatigue, 
two months is fine. It's negotiating with that patient. In Sweden, there have been um, studies shown that oral B12, that's high dose oral B12 of 500 milligrams, micrograms, sorry, or 1,000, which is much higher than we do, actually works because it goes to that smaller intrinsic pathway system at the bottom of the small intestine. So mm. I've put patients on high dose, but ensuring compliance and taking mm. a regular vitamin and knowing that actually it's a medication, not just a vitamin that's helping them, so that you can move patients over on those grounds. Thank you so much. Perfect. I think we've kind of got to our five minutes and there's always lots more to talk about B12. Um, so we can always pick this up and do a further podcast and some more information if there are more questions that need it. Um, but I think we may have to wrap up this one. Um, and with that, I'd like to thank you all for joining us today and listening to both Rach and I myself. Uh, I hope you've learned something along the way. There always is uh, something new to learn. Uh, please spread the words to your colleagues about sharing the link. And we really would appreciate it if you would complete the poll at the end of this podcast. Let us know what you think. If you have any unanswered questions on this particular topic, let us know. We'll pick them up at a future podcast. If there are any other topics you'd like to let us uh, talk to us about, um, please let us know. And we'll be very happy to do that. Thank you very much. <laughs>